The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. All right, everybody, we're going to be continuing our studies in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be picking up in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll try to recap some of this. Uh, help me out with some of the big things. I'm, I might forget, Caleb. I think it's good to remind ourselves that we noted that in the very middle of this book, Paul explains why he wrote this book, why he wrote this letter. 1 Timothy verses chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, as I'm writing these things, I want to come to you, but in case I'm delayed, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know how you're supposed to live in God's household, or maybe another way to say that, maybe oversimplification a little bit, but how you're supposed to live in God's family. And all the different teachings that we're going to read about in First Timothy really kind of center around this idea. What does God expect in his house? What are his, to put it in a simple way, what are his house rules for his kids, for, for the people that are with him? So we started in chapter one and noted that the first issue that Paul wanted to clarify was the importance of getting doctrine right, that there were people who were false influences who were perverting people's understanding of God and his, their understanding of God's expectations and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and one of the real keys to that was that because there was a perversion in doctrine, it was perverting people's ability to love properly. Paul summarized the whole point of all the teaching, all the things we're supposed to know and understand in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, where he said, the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So if you connect chapter 1 and verse 5 to chapter 3 and verse 15, maybe a way to summarize this is Paul wanted to write this letter to clarify the fundamental values and the practical day-to-day expressions of those values of what it means to be God's people. We need to get the doctrine right, understand the truth, so that we'll love God and love one another rightly, so that we'll live in God's house uh, in the way he ought. Uh, And then the last time we looked at the first actual instruction that he gave in chapter two, where he says, first of all, I urge that you pray. And he gave some different instructions about that. You can check out the the, uh, video from last week if you want uh, to recap that. Um, But he talks about prayer and, and prayer really is a way of kind of grounding ourselves and grounding our attitudes as they ought to be. That's kind of where we come so far. What, what else do we need to make sure to uh, remind ourselves of before we keep on going, though? Caleb, what are you, what are you thinking about that we uh, need to touch on before we keep it moving? Well, just that all of these instructions in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, yeah. all the instructions that Paul's going to give to Timothy are rooted deeply in the gospel story. Mm-hmm. We see that in chapter 1 where, he, where Paul kind of talks about how um, – at the heart of everything that is that he's teaching is um, sound doctrine is that which conforms to the gospel. He says in verse 11 concerning the glory of the blessed God. Um, and so the reason, the reason we're trying to be right in what we teach and how we live is because of what God has done, how God has blessed us through Christ Jesus. And he talks about that in, in even greater detail in verses 12 through 17. You see that again here in chapter two, um, that uh, why do we need to pray? Well, because uh, God, God, our Savior, is pleased by it. Verse four, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, and so basically, at the heart of every all these instructions is, this is what is pleasing to the God 
who has rescued us and who saved us and who sent Christ Jesus, the Lord and King, to become a ransom for all people. So because of that, a lot of this is how do we then respond if we're going to be part of his household? How, how, How do we act? How do we conduct ourselves in a way that is actually pleasing to him? Um, as part of his own people. Amen. Sweet. So we're going to pick up in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. But before we do that, why don't we pray a little bit before we start. Father, thank you for caring about us enough to give us your word, to give us direction, to give us your wisdom, to show us how you think and who you are. We pray, Lord, as we read your scriptures now, that it would guide us, convict us, and in the places where we need to be challenged, we pray that you give us humility to embrace what you say. Um, Father, help us to be introspective with each of our own hearts so that we'll uh, let your spirit do its work to change us, transform us, and, and make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Just after talking about the importance of that gospel message Caleb was just talking about and the preaching of the gospel in the world, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. All right. Thanks, Ben. Um, so, yeah, so today we're going to get into some uh, some stuff here that I think is uh, is problematic for most people. I thought about asking you here at the beginning, Ben, um, and asking everybody who's on uh, which parts of this paragraph is maybe most offensive to you. Um, because when you get to when you get to this paragraph, Paul starts to, to say some things that I think to the average person, average hearer who's just reading this for the first time, it's, it's pretty shocking. And, uh, and also uh, quite um, hard for us to swallow. Um, so maybe, maybe even you know, before... You were saying the average modern Western hearer in the 21st century. Yeah, so that's one of the things I wanted to say here at the beginning, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, if today when, when we discuss what it means to be a man of God or what it means to be a woman of God, it's really important for us to look to the scriptures. And by the way, First Timothy 2 is not, not anywhere close to all that the scriptures have to say about what it means to be a man or a woman of God. Um, but I do want to say at the beginning, like, it's really important for us to look to scripture and not to our culture or to our upbringing. Um, and one of the reasons for that, in my view, is that cultures ebb and flow, they come and go. And, and every culture gets some things right, but every culture also gets some things wrong. Uh, you know, I don't think any of us would look back at our grandparents' generation 
um, and see see some things about the way they did, they thought, or the way they lived, or the way they acted. Uh, probably all of us can look back at some things and say, like, "Hey, that was crazy!" Like they just totally missed it on that. They were that the culture was like way off in how they thought about that. How was it ever? How was it ever possible that people could think it would right or okay to uh, segregate water fountains and restrooms in school? I mean, that's just that's just bizarre. Um, but we should not be so arrogant as to think that 50 years from now, our grandkids aren't going to look back at our culture and do the same thing and say something similar. How could they have missed it? How could they have thought it was right to do that? Or how could they have thought that this was wrong? Um, and I say that simply to say that, that cultures change, but the word of God remains the same. Um, and cultures are often wrong, but God's word is, is always right. And so when we're trying to figure out like how to navigate life in this world and how to act as a man or a woman of God, uh, we need to make sure that our views are rooted more in scripture than, in, than in culture. Um, I think that's important. Now, having said that, I, 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 we always say this in our studies, but I want to say it again here at the outset. Um, there may be some things that we suggest or, or so, some things that we teach from this text that you strongly disagree with. Uh, and, and I want you to remember that when that happens, it could be that what I'm saying is wrong or what we're talking about here is our interpretation of this text is wrong. Um, and if so, I, I'd really appreciate and invite you to correct us on that and talk with us about it. Um, but it's important also to remember that it, that it also could be true that, that, uh, that my thinking on this matter is more influenced by our culture than the word of God. And that may be affecting why I think this way. So so we got to look first at, at scripture and, and, and think through uh, this issue. I don't know if you have a uh, thought on that particularly, Ben, um, or anything you want to add on that point before we kind of dig in here. No, I think you nailed it. I mean, we always think that about everything. It's probably just good every once in a while for us to stop and say that really clearly, just like you're doing right here. So this is a good place for us to say it. But then right. we're going to do the best we can to talk about this stuff honestly and, and fairly, but we can make a mistake. And so uh, let's talk about it if so. Yeah. One other thought I had too is, you know, some parts of, of scripture like this are, um, are really offensive to us. But if you were to go to other parts of the world and read this, they would have no issue with it. At least, at least large parts of the culture would have no issue with it whatsoever. Um, ironically though, if you were to take a different portion of scripture, that's not at all offensive to us and read it in those parts of the world, it's quite offensive to them. And that's important for us to remember that the gospel is offensive to everybody. Um, you know, uh, the gospel is rooted in the truth that, that we are all so, so horrible, so terrible, that nothing short of the death of God's only son could save us. So, I mean, that in and of itself is offensive um, to everybody. And so if I'm offended by the gospel, I shouldn't assume that I'm right. Just because I'm offended by something that scripture says doesn't necessarily mean the scripture is wrong. And in fact, if scripture is what it claims to be, breathed out by God, inspired by God, then we ought to trust that, that, that scripture is right. And I got to figure out how to interpret that the way God intends for it to be interpreted. Yeah, absolutely. So I think with all this uh, kind of setup, and it leads us straight into verse eight, because every single instruction that he gives in verse eight is a, 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 it confronts and is, is an affront to the way we think men are supposed to be. Um, you know, like, yeah, I think about I me, mean, he makes this statement, one, men need to pray. Well, most men just want to deal with stuff on their own, fix stuff. 
Yeah. Prayer is humbling yourself before someone more powerful than you and saying, please help me. Listen, if you're going to be a real man, you learn to rely fully on God, to bow yourself before God in desperation and say, God, I need you. Secondly, he says to pray with holy hands, um, which, I mean, that, that doesn't just, I mean, because uh, sometimes maybe we over-literalize this. And I mean, certainly it's a good biblical practice to raise your hands up when you pray, but he also doesn't mean just lift up just holy hands. Your hands symbolize all of your being. It, it, you need to be holy. The things you do with your hands or in, in your life in general need to be holy. Well, think about the, the thing that we say so often about men. Oh yeah, boys will be boys, which is just a stupid phrase that we use to excuse bad and oftentimes sinful behavior. Right. So men need to be humble enough to ask for help, which we, you know, whether it's for driving directions or in the hardware store or in any aspect of life, we don't like asking for help. We can't use boys will be boys to excuse sinful and evil behavior. We need to be holy. And then he talks about, doing things without wrath and disputing or arguing. Boy, if we live in a world that encourages men, like if you're not someone who's a fighter, who's going to stick up for what you believe and, and fight and argue and cuss and do whatever you got to do to win the argument, that's what it means to be a man to a lot of people in the world. And here the Lord says, you can't do that. None of the stuff that we think of as being a real man is actually allowed in God's house. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, it really, at every part of Paul's teaching here in verse eight, he is uh, he's calling them to be countercultural, um, to be people who depend on God in prayer. Um, which, by the way, that start that conversation started in chapter two and verse one, right? Where he says, first of all, I want you to be praying for all people." Um, and so to be a man of God is to be a man of prayer, a man who's devoted to prayer. Um, but I think it's really important too. you know, a lot of us, we, we want to think, you know what, I can have a relationship with God. I can pray to God. I can, I can know God and, 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 I, and God will hear my prayers and God, God will, uh, God will, um, be pleased with me in spite of the fact that I'm living an unholy life. Um, and actually, this, this passage, I think the main thing that Paul is pointing out here is that when we are lifting up our hands in prayer, they ought to be holy. They ought to be, they ought to be free from all the corruption and all the sin and all the selfishness and pride that you see that is typical of mankind um, and typical of men across the earth. The anger, the disputing, the immorality, the greed, all of that is, is let go of. Um, as we come to God and, and, and we look to God in prayer. Um, uh, as I was uh, looking at this text too, it reminded me of something, you know, and I, so we probably, I probably should say more about this as we go through the text sometime. Um, yeah, you do a really good job of this, I think, uh, oftentimes pointing us back to this. But really what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2 is just the fulfillment of what God uh, had already said would happen in the prophets. Um, in Malachi chapter one and in verse 11, listen to this, uh, Malachi says this, he says, my name will be great among the nations, speaking of God, um, from, where, from where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, so this is an interesting statement that Malachi the prophet makes in Malachi 1 and verse 11. 
he he says that God is God's name is going to be great not just in Israel but God's name is going to be great in all the nations uh, in every place there's going to be incense and pure offerings brought to him um, now in the New Testament oftentimes uh, incense is used in connection with the prayers of the saints you see that especially in the book of Revelation um, and he also mentions their pure offerings in Malachi chapter one. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he's drawing on this text to say, hey, this is how God's name gets exalted across all the nations by men in every nation, in every place, lifting up holy hands and, and, and praying to God. Uh, in essence, God, this, this uh, obeying this command is showing or revealing the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose, that ultimately his people would be, his people would exalt his name in every nation across the earth. I just thought that was really cool um, and beautiful to see. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great call. And I was thinking, um, I'm probably going to miss it, but you, you've been in Malachi more recently, I would suppose. Isn't it Malachi 3 or maybe 4 where he rattles off, after talking about a lot of their problems and their religious practices, he rattles off a lot of problems with how they would treat other people too. Yeah. And here it's interesting in First Timothy 2 and verse 8, we see yet another place in scripture where yeah. acts of religious devotion, you got to get those right in order to treat others right as well. And really how they go, they go hand in hand and you can't pretend like you can do one and forsake the other. I forget the exact verse was somewhere in Malachi 3, I think. I mean, besides the piece about divorcing their spouses and abandoning them and stuff, this piece here in First Timothy 2 and verse 8, you need to lift up your hands and be holy and honor God in that way. You also need to make sure that you don't go praying to God and talking about how great God is and singing the songs to God and all that stuff, but then go out and browbeat your coworkers, berate people who disagree with you politically, go and curse out the ump or the ref at the game, um, right. be hateful to your kids or wife at home. All that negates any potential deeds of service to God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. If men don't resist the temptation to be people defined by wrath and arguing and dissension and disputing, it's a sin and we can't be doing that. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that will hinder our prayers too, to God. Um, you know, so there's a few things here. One, there's just the problem of uh, a lack of humility that I think is a rampant problem among men. Um, you know, where we, where we, don't, we, or sometimes we don't even have the humility to pray period. Um, but then even when we do pray, it's often hindered by the fact that uh, our hands are not holy. Maybe there's immorality, impurity um, in, in our own life. Maybe there is uh, just this uh, bitterness or anger that's welling up in us that we haven't let go of. Some anger, or some frustration, some unforgiveness in our heart toward people uh, that, that we haven't uh, forgiven them for. Uh, or also, as you're kind of pointing out too, just like that quarrelsome spirit um, that quarrelsome spirit. And I think probably that's a really good and timely reminder for us right now um, in the upcoming months here. And I, I appreciate you brought up the, the thing about political stuff. Uh, we need to understand that, that we are called as men of God to not be quarrelsome, to not be angry and, and disputing and starting arguments, um, causing dissension. Um, so, so, so that's part of, uh, what it means to be a man of God is to get rid of all that stuff and instead to offer up our hand, our, our holy hands to God in prayer. 
And think about how much more effective we'd be in accomplishing the will of God and, 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 and progressing the kingdom of God if, if, if we spent all our time devoted to praying rather than arguing and rather than, uh, than trying to get back at people who've hurt us, uh, who have slandered us, or who, who've done mean, mean or harsh things to us. Um, pretty strong exhortations for, uh, for, for men here. It seems to me, though, the stuff in verse 8, probably most of us, we read that. And even though actually in practice and in our more private, um, maybe even inner dialogue, it's like, yeah, that's important, but it's okay to whatever, not really pray about your problems or not be totally holy or to argue when necessary, that kind of thing. But in general, even if we kind of believe that, that in a piece of us, um, verse eight, it would be kind of accepted like, yeah, actually, that would be a good thing for a man to do. Like, that's a pretty widely, I, I think, verse eight, mm-hmm. though practically it's not accepted, theoretically it's accepted that these are admirable traits of manhood. Um Verses 9 through 15, I think, are kind of the opposite. I think theoretically, it's like, wait, what? You're saying what about women? And what are, what's supposed to go on with women? And so I think in some ways it's more challenging. I wonder if it was more challenging for the people in Ephesus as well, because Paul doesn't bother explaining. I mean, he has, I think, just as many, arguably more instructions, actually, in verse 8 for men than he does to women in verses 9 through 15. I mean, the, the instructions to women can be boiled down to basically two things. He is like three, arguably four things that he says to men, but he knew that for them, maybe just like for us, these instructions for women are a little bit more challenging. So he spends some more time unpacking it and spends, takes a little more effort to explain the, uh, the theory behind some of these instructions. It doesn't make it stuff that we're going to necessarily embrace or get excited about. I mean, we better embrace it if we're going to be in God's household. Doesn't mean we're going to love it though, but it is still important. And I appreciate him taking a little more time to explain this. Verse eight, I think we can figure out why it's important. And okay, yeah, I can understand this. The stuff in verses nine through 15, the instructions are pretty simple, but the explanation's helpful to, to help us, you know, kind of deal with and, and comprehend this, this instruction. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, also um, at least in some parts of this kind of, uh, maybe a little surprising or, or shocking uh, to, to think about. So, yeah, so let's dig into verses 9 through 15 here, um, where Paul turns and says to women, likewise, I also want women to dress modestly. Um, the NIV then says, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or, expen- or, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Um, so this, this word modesty is uh, thrown around a good bit. Um, ben, if you were going to try to define that for, uh, for our audience, like what, how would you define the word modesty? Um, I don't guess this is actually a definition, but I think I'd use the word, um, two words maybe, appropriate and subdued. Appropriate meaning like it's not going to be um, – if I show up to a baseball game, I'm not going to wear a tuxedo to use man, man clothes uh, examples, right? That's not really appropriate. It doesn't even make sense. Like, what are you doing wearing a tux? You know, unless you're singing the national anthem, I guess, on the field. Like, what are you doing? You know, it's not really appropriate. And also, I think of the idea of being modest. We even talk about someone, um, you know, maybe they 
strike a big business deal. And you're like, wow, dude, that's so amazing. And they, and they kind of downplay it. And our responsibility, oh, don't be so modest. The idea is you kind of subdue any kind of attention on yourself. And I think that's the idea that it's uh, appropriate and subdued. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that hit me in this is that uh, modesty affects the way you dress, but it's about more than the clothes that you wear. It's really about like the heart of a person. It's about the hidden person. And, um, and it's interesting that he speaks about modesty alongside self-control um or the niv i think calls that uh their um uh, decency and propriety um but he's he uses these two words uh alongside um and, and probably it's important for us to think about the fact that any kind of modest apparel is the result of a godly heart um it, it, that's where it's in the heart where modesty and self-control originate. Um, and, and if we if we choose to fear God, then we're going to be interested in cultivating these two these two virtues. These are not just virtues that are limited to women, though he specifically emphasizes this with women. Um, but but if you think about it, like modesty is um, it, it is choosing to express yourself in humility as you talked about, instead of trying to draw attention to me, it's about trying to point people uh, to the Lord, um, which I think is helpful too, because then immodesty uh, is, is, is something that's rooted in pride. It's more than just, uh, I picked out the wrong outfit. Um, it, it, it's, it's pride on display in the way that I'm acting or in what I, what I wear. It's the act of trying to draw attention to me um, rather than to point others to the Lord. Yeah. And I think you see that with some of the things he outlines, which I think when you pair this with first Peter three, which is a very similar passage. Um, I don't personally think, I know there are some who do, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, probably argue with them very much about it. I don't think he's saying it's wrong to braid your hair or it's wrong to wear any kind of gold jewelry, et cetera. There are examples of people in scripture that do that kind of stuff. Um, there are people praised in scripture for their beauty and their physical appearance. Also, like in first Peter three, it literally says, don't put on dresses. Well, does that mean literally don't put on a dress? Cause at that time, what else was a woman going to wear? As far as I know, there weren't any pants that women were wearing back then. Actually men didn't even wear pants back then. Right. So I don't think he, he's absolutely condemning this stuff, but what he is saying is, Hey, here's the thing that some people do. Some women assert their power. Like some men assert their power with wrath and arguing, some women assert their power by showing off with elaborate hairstyles and really fancy jewelry and really fancy dresses to try to, to, like you said, express, look how great I am. Look how significant I am. They're not professing godliness, as he says. That's what your clothing should demonstrate. That's what your attitude should demonstrate. That's what everything about it should demonstrate is that we're pointing people toward God. That's the whole deal. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's interesting in, in that time, the main issue was uh, ostentatious, elaborate, fancy dress. There's other expressions of this too. Like a person could dress immodestly, or in other words, drawing attention to themselves to elevate their significance or power. If you have a really attractive body and shape, then you can wear clothing, actually limiting the amount of clothing that you're wearing 
to draw attention. It's the same concept. Either way, I'm trying to assert my power, either to show you how artistic I am, how creative I am, how rich I am, how physically attractive I am, whatever. I can use my clothing or lack thereof or abundance thereof to assert my power, which is not what this thing's about. This thing is supposed to be about godliness. And whether it's men who are tempted to be wrathful and argumentative, or it's women who are tempted to dress in a, you know, me-centric kind of way, either way, that's not pointing people to God. That's pointing people to us. Yeah, and I think probably just as kind of like a heart check right now um, in the middle of this discussion, probably the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, um, is what is the intent of my heart in the way I um, conduct myself and present myself and, and the way that I dress and the apparel that I wear? What is the intent of, of my heart? Um, because I think modesty begins there. It doesn't end there, but it begins there. It starts with what am I searching for and what, uh, whose approval or whose attention am I really seeking? Um, and, and in that sense, I think there is a, there is a link between um, my heart and how I dress. Uh, if my heart is full of pride and immodesty, um, then, then, I, then the change has to begin there. It can't just begin with, with my clothing. Um, which, by the way, all throughout Scripture, there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot said about this. You know, whose attention are you seeking? Uh, who, whose gaze are you trying to attract? Isaiah 66 comes to mind, where the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, this is verse 2, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where uh, is a place that I may rest? For my, for my hand made all these things. Thus, I will, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So who are the people who catch God's attention? Obviously, nothing escapes God's notice. But who does God fix his gaze on? Well, according to this text, it's those who are humble and contrite in heart, those who tremble at his word. God is looking for, for, for an inner character that, that has a heart that is, in, that is intent on being pleasing to him, not on, on the kind of character that is intent on getting attention and attraction uh, from others. So having said that, um, you know, what then, what does modest apparel look like? As you read these verses, Ben, how, how if we're going to exhort our sisters um, to, uh, to conduct themselves and to dress modestly, um, what does that look like? Um, maybe a sister is that, thinking that or asking that. Um, so, uh, so, so what would you say? Well, to me, the best thing is he gives that line at the end of verse 10, what is proper for women making a claim to godliness? Yeah. Good. So, I mean, to me, that's kind of the standard. I mean, there's lots of ways to kind of slice this up. There's lots of passages in the scripture that talk about, um, for instance, like the, the, the attire of a harlot. Okay. Yeah. And there's not a lot of detail given in that. And that's probably on purpose because I think there's some, um, there's a little bit of a sliding scale. I think there's some things we can say pretty definitively whenever you start intentionally exposing parts of your body or highlighting parts of your body, for sexual purposes, I'm not talking about like for medical procedures or just because you don't have clothing. But I mean, if, if you're intentionally clothing yourself or declothing yourself to highlight sexually attractive features of your body, or if you're clothing yourself in a way that shows off how rich you are, once again, that was the problem he specifically addresses here. I mean, come on, like, you know, 
you know what you're doing. And I mean, it, it comes to a little bit of the heart thing that you pointed out. I do love in this that he presupposes we all have hearts that want to please God. With the men, with the women, he presupposes that. And he just jumps straight to, all right, I assume that you guys love God and you want to please God and you're humble people. Now, here's what that has to look like, okay? Because you may not have known. You may have thought, hey, everybody dresses this way. And I know a lot of people who I think they're just like, this is how everybody dresses. I'm not trying to do anything. And you may not be trying to do anything um, to, to be provocative, but you need to embrace the realities of whether or not your dress, someone looks at and says, oh, that's someone proclaiming godliness. And I do think that's the way to measure it. Because when I say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I'm not dressing like such and such. Okay, fine. But would someone look at you in the way you're dressed and think that's probably a Christian? And I think that's the way it should be. That's probably somebody who's religious. That's probably somebody who's trying to serve God. Now you may not be, it may just be, you just have to be dressed that way. But I think that's the idea that whenever we clothe ourselves or whenever we conduct our business in any aspect of life, it should be that people would look at it and say, I bet you that's a Christian just based on the way they're dressing, the way they're carrying of themselves, whatever. Uh, that's probably a Christian. That's probably someone who is serving God. That needs to be the standard for how we dress. Yeah, amen. And and you kind of brought this up, but I, I think it is important to hit on that there there's really different forms of immodesty or different ways that it kind of manifests itself um, that we can kind of, that we could fall into. I was reading uh, just this past week, um, doing some reading on technology and its effect on us. And, and I came across something I was reading that was discussing uh, like how many Instagram models are deep in credit card debt because they never wear the same clothes twice. And they, they're always pay they're always paying to stay in the nicest and fanciest hotels and eat the most expensive cuisine. Um, and, and what is that? Like that's immodesty. That's like a desire. That's a greed or a desire to present yourself uh, in a way that just invites or, or seeks attention from other people. And, uh, and a lot of people are caught up in that, um, trying to figure out how many, how, how can I dress or how can I present myself in a way that I can get more likes or more attention. Um, of course, also, um, I think another form of that, uh, form of immodesty that's often talked about, you mentioned the attire of a harlot, is, is sexual immodesty. Um, and of course, we live in a day where everything related to sexual norms uh, ha have been reversed. Uh, it's, very, it's similar to what Isaiah said, people call evil good and good evil. Um, Jeremiah says that people had no shame at all. They've forgotten how to blush. And, and our city and our nation um, have become the kind of culture that not only does what's shameful, but glories in it uh, as well. And I think I think it's important for us to think about many of us may have fallen captive to our culture on this subject. Uh, it, it, this, is a, this is, I think, something that, that we can have a problem uh, with as well. And, 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 and as it relates to maybe sexual immodesty, one thing that we should think about is sexual immodesty is dressing or acting in a way that invites sexual attention. Um, that is seeking impurity or immorality from, from anyone other than your spouse. Um, and if, if, if your body is the Lord's, if we are the Lord's and, and he is Lord over us, then, then, then our body is for, is for the Lord and for our spouse alone. Um, so if I use my body to try to incite sexual desire from anyone other than my spouse, um, then I am inciting immorality and, and that is inherently 
immodest. Um, notice in Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman is dressed in colorful and attractive clothing, but there's a difference between dressing attractively and dressing in a way that is sexually attractive, um, dressing in a way that's trying to desire or elicit some sort of sexual uh, attention. So I, th I think those are at least two maybe forms of that that kind of come up that we need to be careful about and we need to be watchful about um, and, uh, and, and read Proverbs 7 and look at the harlot's attire um, and, and think about that uh, as it reflects to your own personal um, either uh, attitudes or your own personal um, actions or your, or, or your own dress um, and reflect on that to see if it's, if I'm dressing and acting in a way that, that, that is, is seeking the attention of the Lord or seeking the attention of others. Yeah. And I'll just say one more thing on this, uh, maybe one and a half things. Uh, some people might say, hey guys, look, quit talking about all these principles things and just like give some like, like measurements, you know, like, come on, like give some specifics. Um, I personally would be happy to do that. I'd be happy to do that if um, specific questions are asked by an individual, partly because in forums like this, we may actually make a mistake and go too far or go too short with what we might say. But when it comes to real life questions, I think we're happy to say, okay, yeah, like, no, I think that's immodest. Sorry. You know, um, these are some principles. And that's what we're trying to do is lay out principles. And then if, if someone wants to talk personally, individually, we're more than happy to do that. Um, and so actually I, I lied. I said one and a half. I'm going to say two and a half things. That was the half thing. Here's the two things. The second thing is find somebody who is genuinely godly yeah. um, that can give you some counsel on this, you know, um, yeah, that's probably all that needs to be said about that. Find someone who you know is a God-fearing person and say, hey, let me know. What do you think? Is this modest or is this immodest? Like, what do you think? I'm trying to work on some of my wardrobe. Just go ask them. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say was that uh, some people just say, no, come on. The sexual modesty thing, all the New Testament ever talks about is wealth and modesty, fancy dresses, all that stuff. And actually, I, I think that's pretty much true. I may be forgetting one in the New Testament, but I think that's pretty accurate, actually. That doesn't mean that that point you were just making about sexual immodesty being an issue. That doesn't mean that's illegitimate. It just means that the people that he was writing to, this was the form of immodesty that they were struggling with. Right. Maybe it wasn't in vogue very much for the common woman to dress in certain ways. So this is what he's talking about. This is what he's addressing. And if you question that the, the human body, because I've had people who I've discussed this, but they're like, listen, it's just, and there's all kinds of reasons people give. But it, it's not a legit thing before God that the human body is a sexual expression or it's a, anything sexual at all. We've just sexualized it. That's just not true. And if, it, and if you want to talk about that more, feel free to reach out to us. I'll refer you to the book of Song of Solomon. It's an extremely sexual book, all about the sexuality and the sexual appeal of the human body. And by the way, if you're wondering which parts of the body you need to be careful about accentuating or maybe not accentuating, Song of Solomon is a great place to go. By the way, in that context, it's all thumbs up because it's a husband and wife talking about each other's bodies. So that's great. But it also goes, just goes to show, yes, the human body is designed to be sexual. And we can either highlight that and emphasize that to assert our sexual power, or we can choose to be modest about that. Just like the business person who gets praised, and he says, oh, no, no. He subdues it a little bit. We can subdue our sexual power in order to promote godliness. So anyway, that's all I got to say. You know some more, but I know we got more to talk about here. Yeah, amen, amen. No, that's good. And 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 notice too. I mean, sometimes when we look at texts like this, um, it's easy to focus on what what the not is, but not on what the what what the focus is as far as how to act. 
Notice that the emphasis here on how women are to present themselves in modesty and self-control is by doing good deeds mm-hmm. um, and, and, and doing the things that you mentioned earlier, appropriate for women who profess to worship God, appropriate for women who, who are godly. Um, that is where our focus should be on doing the things that are ultimately pleasing to him and using the gifts that God has given us to, uh, to be a blessing to other people, not on seeking and, 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 and eliciting attention from others. Yeah. Um, so he, go, he goes further though. Um, in verse 11, he says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Um, and uh, and this, te- this is not the only place where we see teaching like this. You see this also in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, and 1 Corinthians uh, 14. Um, you see similar things talked about there um, and, and, and a similar picture there. But Paul is basing what his teaching on creation, on, on, uh, on what began in creation. It was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Um, and so basically, uh, Paul is saying there's an order that's, that, that God created in terms, of, uh, in terms of how God intended leadership. Um, I like the way Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, if I can find that real quick. Um, uh, He says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, in verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Um, In essence, Paul is saying that God has designed an order there where men are called to lead women. Uh, and actually, that's the way it's been from, from the beginning. That's the way God designed it. God created man first and then created woman out of the man to be a helper for the man. Uh, therefore, Paul says, when it comes to uh, relationships here, um, the woman is not to take to exercise authority or to teach or to, uh, to seek to um, usurp uh, authority over, over a man as God has designed it the woman is to quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, to be submissive to the role that God has put her in. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, we, this is a challenge to us because certainly, um, you know, some of our ideas about equality um, make us think that means everybody needs to do everything. Yeah. And, and I know that gets sticky because you start following the train of thought in certain directions. You're like, wait, what does that mean over here, over here, over here? What I know is this, is that men and women are equally uh, valuable and valid as members of God's household and have equally significant roles in the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that our roles are always the same. And there's a number of places in scripture that distinguish men need to do this, women need to do that, women need to do this, men can't do that, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's kind of hard for us to get down with. But this is another one of those places where God just said, this is how it's got to be. This is how I expect it to be, even if we don't prefer it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's is pretty straightforward. So one, one, the thing about this, I think it gets pretty, I mean, besides just the initial, hey, wait a second, why can't women preach? And why can't women have authority over men? Like that, that stuff are just questions that we get into. 
so then he starts explaining it. And uh, Brian brought up a question related to this that uh, is probably worth throwing out here because uh, it said, let me see if I can scroll back up here and find it. He was highlighting this bit about when, when he explains it, he talks about the creation order. And then he also says, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. So, so Brian says, he says, Adam, Eve was deceived, not Adam. And then he asked, when Adam partook after Eve, is that not deception? Haven't we thought he was just as guilty? Or is it something besides deception, like he knew but did it anyway, like a betrayal? How would you kind of respond to Brian's question there? Um, and he kind of follows up here. That he's saying, oh, Adam also, particularly if he was not deceived, what then? What's going on? What is Paul's point about this? Eve was deceived because I'll just tell you, I think one way you can read this is, listen, we need the men to be the ones teaching because you know how dumb the girls are. They easily get deceived. And, you know, Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was the one deceived. And that's where all the problems of the whole world started was with a woman. I think that's one way to read that. I don't think that's the right way, obviously. I don't know. I don't think, I'm pretty sure you don't either. But how would you kind of explain this whole bit about what it means for Eve to be deceived, not Adam? And kind of Paul's implication of, therefore, men have this duty to teach and women have this responsibility to be submissive, to be quiet, to not usurp authority or to be teachers over men in God's house. Well, I don't know that I, I have all the answers to, uh, to that question, but I, I will say this. When I look at the story in Genesis 3, um, it, it seems to me that one of the things that the writer of Genesis is highlighting is the failure of man to lead uh, and to be in his proper place um, as being part of the reason why the, uh, the fall happens. Um, you know, the, the, if, you, if you read in Genesis 3, you got to be asking yourself, uh, where is Adam in all this? And where is his leadership uh, in all this? And as Brian points out, instead of leading the woman to obey God, uh, he, he, he falls into the same sin that she does. It, it, except it almost seems like in some ways it may be worse in that she's doing it being deceived. He, he is not deceived. Uh, and yet, and yet chooses to sin. And so, um, you know, ultimately, I don't know that, I, I don't think this makes in any way man, and I appreciate what you already said about this, I don't think this in any way makes man more valuable or more important than woman. Um, it, it seems as if Paul is just emphasizing, though, uh, that, that, um, that the fall itself was kind of illustrative of of how man choosing to ignore God's originally designed plan um, resulted into more and more sin. And so ultimately, I don't know that I have all the, all the uh, a full understanding of what all God's reasons are for why he designed it this way, but he did. And he said, he points out verse 13, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived who fell into the transgression. Um, you may have additional thoughts or clarifications on, on that. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that, Ben? I mean, I may just be basically restating things you already said, but, but if, I, if so, then it's just an echo and an amen to what you just said, at least from what I heard. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with this instruction at the outset, it's just one of those where you have to be like, hey, do I, do I trust that the Bible is the word of God and am I willing to obey it? Whether that's men, I'm not allowed to be a, a disputer. I can't be a, a man of wrath. It doesn't matter what my emotions are or how I'm wired or how I grew up. Right. I'm just not allowed to. And whether there's a great theological explanation for that or not, I'm just not allowed to. Right. Same thing goes here for women when it comes to teaching or exercising authority over men in God's household. 
just not allowed to. But with this explanation, I do think, like you pointed out, the, uh, the way God designed things, that it's first man and then woman, um, really that, again, was not a, an assertion of men are more skilled or more adept at doing these things. It's just the way God set it up. And part of the reason 1 Corinthians 11 teaches that part of the reason God set it up that way was to really be a living example that we interact with every day to remind us that there is such a thing as hierarchy and order and authority most of all between God and all human beings, male or female, young or old, whatever country and whatever language you speak of, there's God and there's us. And the relationship between men and women is supposed to be a living, breathing example and reminder of that every day. That's how God created it. But then secondly, I totally agree with what you said. I think the point of, uh, of verses, uh, verse 14 is that Adam did not step up. He did not fulfill his responsibility to, to lead. God gave him the instructions. And as far as we can tell from Genesis 2 and 3, Adam was supposed to pass that on to Eve. Adam was right there with Eve, according to the text in Genesis 3, whenever the serpent deceived her. Adam never spoke up. He never stepped in. He never did his job. And because of that, it ruined her life and it ruined his life. And so as much as um, this passage is a restraint on women, it's a call to action on men to do what God has told them to do. And frankly, a lot of men are too lazy or too selfish or too whatever to step up and do that, to serve in the ways that God has called us to. And uh, so, I mean, I think that's, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I think that's, uh, that's a big piece of it. To, to, to Brian's exact question, they both were guilty, but they were guilty of different things. Uh, right. The woman was deceived and maybe she should have asked her husband, Hey, what's the rule on this again? I know God told you some stuff. What's the deal? Actually, she already knew the deal, but she didn't check in with her husband he also didn't step up to do anything. So when they both sinned, they both rebelled. But the man gave up on the job he was supposed to do. The woman overstepped the bounds that she was supposed to have. Yeah. And maybe you're reading this and maybe you're hearing this and you're like, well, you know, Paul, he just, he just loves men more than women. He just cares more about men's rights than, than women's rights. And, and he, he, he's obviously a chauvinist. Well, it is interesting to me that same passage that talks about there being an order that God designed with God, Christ, man, and woman. Later on in that same paragraph in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, in beginning in verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So ultimately, um, I think Paul is pointing out here, it's, I'm not saying that, uh, that somehow men are more valuable, more important, or on a higher level than, than, than women. He's simply saying, this is the way God has designed the order to be. And ultimately, I may not fully understand why God designed the order to be that way. I mean, maybe if I was God, I would have done it differently. But truthfully, if I look back at, at most of the things that I've questioned God on throughout history, as time grows and as, as I've matured, I start to realize, hey, I was wrong, 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 and wrong again. And just because I haven't realized that I'm wrong about this doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think that that's important for us to think about. If this is what God says, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if I don't fully understand the rational or, or, or can't rationalize it or understand it in my own mind. Well, that's when faith becomes real faith. Will I trust God enough to obey him, even when his word doesn't make sense? Or am I only going to trust him if he gives me a good explanation that, that totally satisfies all my curiosity? Uh, that is not faith. 
Faith is trusting God, even when I don't fully understand everything that he's saying or why he's saying it or how he's working it out. Yeah. And I need a lot of faith for verse 15, because I don't know what he means by women will be saved through childbearing. <laughs> I, I do know. I, 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 ask, I, bro. Huh? I was getting ready to ask you. I wanted you to go for that one. Yeah, I, I know. That's why I cut you off. I, I know, we've done this enough. We've been doing this a long time. I know, I know how this goes. Yeah. I mean, here's what I know it doesn't mean. I know it doesn't mean that if a woman doesn't have children, then she's not going to be saved from sin or even that she's somehow less valuable to God. Right. All you got to do is pick up a Bible and start reading. And that's obvious. Right. Uh, God makes a really special point to highlight the barren, the widows, you know, the, the lonely as his special people in some ways because they trust in him so much. So whatever it means, and I might have theories, I'm not going to say them because I don't feel confident enough to, to air out my theories, at least on what this could mean. But, um, but I know it doesn't mean that without children, you're worthless as a woman or it's not special. I do know that it does mean that there are special things about being a woman that men cannot do and that men never will do. Like actually, unless there's severe manipulation, which then isn't even, I mean, I don't even know, like we can't, we can't even go down that road with the manipulations that we're trying to do with the human body in these days to act like we can play God when we're really not fully doing this. Anyways, um, there are special things about being a woman that should be honored and exalted by God's people such that uh, women don't feel like I'm not really doing anything. I'm not contributing anything because I'm not doing ABCD thing. By the way, the same should be true for men. Right. We shouldn't be exalting men who are ungodly or who are men of wrath and dissension, men whose hands are filthy with unholiness, men who don't pray. We shouldn't be exalting and elevating and praising those kinds of men because right. then we're teaching Christian, young Christian men, old Christian men, hey, you should be like that. That's what it means to be a man. We're ruining people. Same thing with women. We can't be saying, oh, this thing that God designed for women to do that's a beautiful thing, it's not that important. And, and you shouldn't be pursuing that because it's not going to fulfill you. Actually, you should pursue this other stuff. Um, we need to think in the way God thinks and exalt those things that God exalts without doing it in such a way that, that harms those who aren't able to do it. Like, for instance, women who aren't able to have children, they should be made to feel like they're less or if they're unmarried, they're less. That's not true at all. Again, read scripture and you're going to find that quickly. But I do think with this text, the note it closes on, although it doesn't really close, he's going right to the next one, but we're going to close on today here in a couple of minutes is this notion of God has given special responsibilities to men and to women, special identities to men and to women, uh, special restrictions for men and for women. And we need to honor those and respect those as members of God's household. Yeah. Amen. And, and especially uh, I love in verse 15, she'll be saved th through childbearing. If, yeah. if they abide in faith, love, holiness with self-control or self-restraint. And I, I think those characteristics are, are 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 the root of a, a a godly woman a woman when god when we think about who is god looking at who is god looking for when it comes to women god is not attracted by the fancy dress uh, of women god is not attracted attracted by the revealing clothes of a woman god is attracted by a woman who devotes herself to living a faithful life filled with love for him and love for others, living a holy life, uh, protecting her purity and focusing on uh, serving him with a single heart and a single mind, and, and then living a self-controlled life. 
a life that is not about exalting me or getting attention for me or using the gifts that God's given me to try to, to try to, uh, to, to, to bring people into me or, or, or to get attention from others, but rather to say, no, I'm going to live a, a life of self-restraint where I focus on pleasing him. And I trust that if I do his will and I'm, and I'm sober and I'm, and I'm of sound mind and I, and I focus on, on, on honoring him in my life, then ultimately he will, in response, take care of me, provide for me, protect me, and bless me, and make, him, make me one of his children. Amen. This is fun. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining in. Thanks for all the comments. I did not get to check uh, in on all the comments today. I'm sorry I, I didn't have uh, Facebook up the whole time here, um, but I, we'll try to go back through those as well. Uh, appreciate, appreciate everybody who chimed in, though, and, and, and discussed this. I realize we may have raised a lot of questions um, in our study today. Uh, so feel free to reach out to us privately uh, or just talk with us next time you see us. Uh, we'd love to discuss this more. Uh, really appreciate all your attention and comments as well. Thanks, everybody. Lord willing, we'll be back on next week, and we'll pick up with uh, the beginning of Chapter 3. Take care, guys. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.